0: Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group.
1: Hello, I'm James Scotland, coming to you today from the Yunganba language region, and this is Supply Circles, the podcast that asks the question, how can we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we're implementing the challenges of the 3Ds? Do you know them? Digitalization to keep up with your peers and your industries, decarbonisation to meet your legal requirements and targets by 2050, and ongoing disruptions, which come in many shapes, not only pandemics but also industry disruptions, product disruptions, logistic interruptions and challenges, global inflation, and many, many more. Each fortnight, I delve into different sections of the end-to-end supply chain, I chat with fascinating and interesting people, And we try to have a little bit of fun along the way. Today I want to talk about change and disruption, particularly in the decarbonised world, what it's going to be like now and in the future. And my specific area of interest is the process for ensuring we in supply chains move into the future in a safe, agreed, standardised and compliant way. I want to investigate the role of standards in manufacturing and service as we transform our economy to a post-carbon way of living and working. You know, I actually don't know much about standards. I spent all of my working life in the service industry, and I have minimal hands-on management knowledge of standards. I'm sure, I know about service standards, and I I have a general management kind of understanding, but no real operational experience, the day-to-day grind of making sure standards are in place. What I do know about standards. Is that they become more important as the pace of change increases, as new products and industries enter the market and old products die off. And they die rapidly. Today, we buy smartphones and smart TVs and smart cars and electric vehicles and air fryers and climate friendly housing and so much more. And none of these existed just a few years ago. And we buy all of these new products with the expectation that the item we buy is safe and it does what it says it does. And so this puts pressure and expectation on businesses, on suppliers and supply lines, and on the manufacturing process at every step. It's an interesting contradiction of innovative thinking and new ways of doing things on one hand, trying to live in harmony with a structured, agreed measurable standards process on the other. So how does it work? How is this harmonious relationship achieved? And what will happen as the pace of change accelerates? all good questions. Let's see if we can find out. I said in the intro that I look for fascinating and interesting people to be my fortnightly guest, and I'm very pleased to say that today's guest is one such person. My guest is Lucy Finlay, the Standardization and Regulation Manager for the Pacific Region for multinational Schneider Electric, which makes her the perfect person to ask about standards and new products. For those who don't know, Schneider Electrics is a leader in the digital transformation of new and existing energy systems. It's a technology-focused global manufacturing company involved in many sections of the electrical and new energy industries. Schneider says its technologies help businesses and consumers become more efficient, reduce costs, and maintain or meet the same sustainability goals. It seems Schneider is at the very front line of managing. The dichotomy of innovation and standards. So, to have their head of standards with us today is very exciting. Hello, Lucy. Welcome to Supply Circles.
0: Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here speaking with you on a sunny yet cold winter's day in a country, Adelaide. Oh,
1: that's very nice. Actually, many people have asked me uh, where the Umuba uh, language region is, and I, I should say that it covers some of the most beautiful parts of Queensland. Uh, including where I'm coming from, which is uh, the Supply Circle Studios overlooking surface paradise. Yeah, paradise indeed. I can only imagine it must be warmer. Uh, well, f- yes, <laughs> but uh, it's still winter, so I'm going to whinge about how cold it is. Why not? I liked, yeah, why not indeed. Um, my description of Snyder, uh, electric sounded very formal and boring. So what's your version? Tell us about the company. Yeah, so... I imagine it's involved in some pretty cool things, by the way. Absolutely, absolutely. And
0: and, and my addition will probably be a little bit formal as well, but, but Schneider's purpose is to empower all to make the most of our energy and resources, bridging progress and sustainability for all. We call this Life Is On. We drive digital transformation by integrating world-leading process and energy technologies, mm-hmm. endpoint to cloud-connecting products, controls, software, and services across the entire life cycle, enabling integrated company management for homes, buildings, data centers, infrastructure, and industries. So we're pretty much everywhere wherever there is energy. But this is where it gets very interesting for us in the Pacific region. We are the most local of global companies. And today, we are advocates of open standards and partnership ecosystems that are passionate about our shared meaningful
1: purpose, inclusive, and empowered values. Oh, that's a good ad. You've done well. You've done well. (laughs) Where did it come from? It sounds German.
0: Uh, a lot of people do think that Schneider Electric is German, but it's actually a French company.
1: Well, I would never have guessed that.
0: Yeah, our, our engineering heart is very much um, in, in France, in the, in the Alps, uh, in, a, in, a, in a lovely little city called Grenoble. Wow. Um, I, I'm very fortunate to, to travel there every now and again, um, and we have some very, very passionate people yeah. uh, in, in that engineering heart, but at the same time, we have operations and headquarters around the world.
1: And including in Australia? Is that the hub for the Pacific or where, where, where's the hub?
0: Yes, yeah, so the, the headquarters for the Pacific is in Sydney, mm-hmm. um, but we have a, a presence in, in just about every, every city in the, in the Pacific region, including Auckland um, and Christchurch. Uh, so very, very strong presence in New Zealand as well.
1: And what's your role? Um, I mean, I, I said that you're head of standards. What, what, um, what's that involve? Uh, standards and regulation, I think I said, didn't I?
0: I head up standards um, standardization within the Pacific region. Um, so I do a lot of listening coupled with a measured level of speaking. <laughs> That's nice. And yeah. I think that yeah. that balance is really important. Listening closely to our partners and customers to understand their challenges I also work very closely with our global teams to understand and contribute to global best practice. Every country around the world is attempting to solve the same problem of decarbonisation. However, each country is faced with its own unique set of circumstances.
1: Mm.
0: Australia can learn from others on some topics while assisting other countries on other topics. Mm. Schneider Electric is participating in each of these unique challenges
1: we hear a lot about the uh, pacific islands being very very nervous about the future because of uh, many islands being low lying uh, and rising sea level mm. uh, being sort of the front line of the change um and i've i've, I've been to places like uh, carabas which is just basically bird poop in the formed into an island they're very low you know a high tide can affect it does it did you hear about that in your job? Because I guess my question is, we hear about it in the media. You're got the Pacific. Is this in your face?
0: Yeah. So it, it it stands to reason that that very low com- very low lying countries in in the Pacific, unfortunately, are the ones who are going to be impacted by rising sea levels. The first, um, I think, everyone is is aware of that and and very. Um, cognizant of that challenge. It's not something that I spend a lot of time focusing on because what I'm trying to focus on is slowing down the actual rise of of, of sea levels through our decarbonisation efforts. And so the role that I play is very much in ensuring that we have the right standards Um, and playing a a role in in guiding regulations to make sure that we've got the right framework to enable a very, very fast energy transition to assist with the decarbonisation of the economy, which will then hopefully lead to um, a reduced impact on those
1: very low-lying islands. So I'm very conscious, but it's it's several orders of magnitude Mm. down the path. But it's all integrated, which is the, the interesting thing, but also the challenge. How did you, Absolutely. How did you end up in this role?
0: Um, so I, I joined Schneider Electric almost seven years ago. Um, I was previously living in Brisbane, so hence why I know the weather of <laughs> South East Queensland so well and um, I dearly miss it. But uh, after a very long drive from from, from uh, Brisbane to Adelaide, I I, sta- I I started a role where I was actually responsible for Schneider Electric's regulatory compliance. And so we have a a lab down here in in Adelaide uh, where we we put all of our products um, within the residential sector um, through very grueling testing as part of their development process. And so I I looked after that lab um, and then also ensured that those products that we sell into the Pacific region meet all of the the regulatory requirements. And then after a period of time, I I moved from ensuring that we met the rules to playing a role in ensuring that we have the correct rules.
1: How did you go about, uh, you you walked into a new role. Was it it easy to understand what you needed to do or did it take you a while to figure out what the most important part was? Just talk me through the management thoughts in your mind because you know, we've got managers listening, it's always good to hear other people explain their, their decision-making processes.
0: I think in whenever you go from one role to another role, and, and I've had the, the, the joy of moving through many different roles in, in my career, and particularly when you move into a leadership role, the first thing I actually look for is not to understand the problem, but to actually start looking for, who is going to replace me in this role when I move on? Mm-hmm. And and when I start looking for that that talent and that and and leadership aspirants, that in itself helps me understand the the, the quantum of what this
1: new role will be. I uh, I'm sort of chuckling because that means that your your management approach is inbuilt obsolescence. You're going to, to make yourself obsolete. Is that right? Or replaced Absolutely. by the new model.
0: Absolutely.
1: We'll talk about that uh, in a minute. By the way, when uh, when we are talking about Brisbane and uh, Adelaide, there uh, was a pause because I was thinking of a conversation I had yesterday with uh, Adelaide AI Group, uh, and it's apparently one or two degrees down there at the moment, and it's 19 degrees up here. And I was saying that uh, in Service Paradise at the moment, there is people walking around with puffer jackets and beanies on um, which are the locals, and then there's yeah. other people walking around in bikinis and board shorts who are the people from <laughs> Melbourne and Adelaide, and uh, you can pick it pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, so you, you ended up in, in, in Adelaide, and I guess you started thinking deeply about um, the transition to a decarbonised world I've heard you, you speak before about some analogies that you have, a good understanding. Do you want to talk about that for, for a few minutes, just how you see what we're trying to achieve?
0: Absolutely. Um, so we're embarking on an energy transition that will change the way we generate, store, and use energy. Collectively, we need to solve some big problems over the next decade, mm. and no yeah. one has all the answers. Bringing people together through consensus is going to challenge tradition models of leadership. Wow. And this is the really important part. People are at the centre of the energy transition, which leads me to this paradigm of I use to explain the energy transition to those who may be less technical, but equally people who are of a technical mindset um, understand this analogy. So if you think of the traditional energy, electricity generation transmission and distribution network.
1: So you're talking being, about wires and poles and
0: beams. Yeah, so from your coal-fired power station through to the transmission yeah. of that energy, mm. through to the distribution, through to the distribution of that energy into your house, into the buildings we work. Um, think of that as the cardiovascular system in your body. Mm-hmm. The coal-fired power station is your heart. It beats at a certain rate, mm-hmm. and it pumps blood or electricity.
1: And then your artery. Can we can we can we stretch it further and say sometimes the heart beats faster and harder, and other times does it kind of rest? It seems like that's. Uh, a-
0: <laughs> yeah. So I. I I wouldn't say, it doesn't extend to the fact of the heart beating faster because this is a very important thing. In the electricity network, the heart or the frequency must remain constant. And that's one thing that coal-fired power stations are actually really good at, Mm -hmm. maintaining a frequency of 50.0 hertz. For non-technical people, that's the rate at which the voltage changes per second, 50 cycles per second. Mm. And so that frequency stability is absolutely critical. And so what it does need to do is pump more blood as required. And coal-fired power stations can, can ramp up and down slowly, albeit, but they can provide that consistent level of power our arteries transmit that blood or that electricity through to our our veins and our muscles around the body. And our muscles are the users of that energy. They are the hot water systems, the air conditioners, the, the now electric vehicle chargers, the lights in your room. And so we're distributing all this energy down to these Loads many, many, many muscles throughout the body. That works fine for a traditional power generation system. Coal fired power stations can do that well. But we all know the challenges of coal fired power stations and the role that they have played um, with rising CO2 levels. What we are attempting to do now is through distributed energy resources, we are placing Energy generators at the end of each of those muscles, at the end of each finger and toe, all around the place. And they are generating different rates of electricity at potentially different frequencies. We need to make sure they're synchronized. We need to make sure that they all work together to deliver the energy to where it is needed. And so that is challenging the traditional model significantly. The role of bringing all of those distributed energy resources together to play with grid-tied distributed energy resources is immense. And that is Mm. one of the big things that um, keeps me awake at night, definitely keeps me awake during the day, (laughs) uh, to to, to come up with and, and work with people from all industries to understand
1: how we can solve this challenge together. I think it's really good. I mean, this is a fascinating way of explaining it. and I think it's to me it sounds accurate. The important thing is your point of we have to try and uh, explain it as being a different way. It's not a, a continuation of the way we've always done it, but just doing it in a, a, a more improved way. Now, this is a different way, but uh, it's... To, i've used an analogy before about the electric vehicles to internal combustion vehicles is like comparing the modern day smartphone to the old rotary dial phone they still do the same basic job but it's a completely different way of operating of thinking of the the whole thing is fundamentally different despite the job being the same and what you're suggesting is that the whole economy has to think about that. It's the electricity and the way we get our energy and what energy we use and where we use it is it a different way. Am I putting words in your mouth, or is is that your sort of overall thesis?
0: No, that 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 does make sense. And if we and if we look at another way of looking at it from a supply paint supply chain perspective with regards to food, always a good way to look at things. We. Throughout the the industrialisation of the of the late 20th century, we had massive factories um, producing food, very large and complex supply chains distributing that food all around the world. Um, that 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 brought food costs down, but it also had had negative impacts with regards to the quality of the food. Um, but it also meant there was a lot more transport. Hmm. One of the things, um, as someone who loves um, cooking uh, and, and entertaining for, for for those that I
1: love, it's a fundamental of living in Adelaide, by the way.
0: Absolutely, you can't. You, and 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 this is one thing I do like about Adelaide, mind you. Um, the everyone would be aware of the eat local concept and eating fresh produce yeah. as it buy is local. available when it's available. Buy local. Um, that, that process is, is very analogous to what we're doing with the energy transition. Okay. Yeah. So the traditional energy model was we had coal-fired power stations dotted around the country and very long distribution networks to get that energy to where it's needed. Mm-hmm. Through distributed energy resources such as photovoltaic, solar, um, wind, um, electric vehicles, we now are able to generate, store, and use energy locally. And so that is radically changing the supply chain Mm -hmm. of energy
1: Mm -hmm. distribution. Years ago, uh, when I was in marketing, I was asked to comment on the the cover page of an annual report for a large um, electrical generating business. Uh, and it was, yeah. in, it was in the Northern Territory. And they had this beautiful photo of pristine Northern Territory with high tensile lines going through the through the valleys and over the hills. And uh, the point of the photo was to say uh, we can get uh, electricity and power to very remote parts of the Northern, Northern Territory. And we said, no, that's not the image that you want to be showing, that you're carving up the the pristine territory. Just, just show the cities and the towns and the villages, you know, don't – but it's show the, the ugly process of it. It's a bit like, you know, you don't want to know how a sausage is made, just eat it. Um, but that's your point, isn't it? We, we don't have to go back to that very clunky industrialised way of doing things. We can find new smart ways.
0: Absolutely. And, and every country around the world is going about this in different ways because every country is faced with unique challenges. So say, for example, here in Australia, we have a very, very large geography. And so the traditional transmission networks have, have needed to meet that. Mm, yeah. But they also, at the same time, place a limitation upon us. Mm. Whereas countries such as New Zealand don't have as large a geography, but they are also blessed with hydro, you know, far greater hydropower Countries such as Singapore do not have the same real estate to generate photovoltaic solar in the same way Australia does.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Every country has a different set of circumstances.
1: And, uh, you know, Japan uh, has um, a need for a lot of electricity uh, and yet they are severely restricted on what they can do with with wind. They, they can put some wind generations off sea, off uh, 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 offshore, but it's very, very deep water, which is difficult. Uh, it's, it's very windy, like it's a typhoon area, and it's in a disputed sea. It's in the South China Sea, so uh, what could possibly go wrong? They can't have that as their solution, so they're looking for other solutions. And Australia, of course, is heavily involved in, in hydrogen and helping them that way. Um, I said at the beginning that uh, we, we should move on standards, but you've established beautifully that your your credentials, if you like, on understanding where we're going. I said there's a sort of, you know, this conflict between rapid change in um, in new products, but we have to find a way to standardize them. Is 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 there a conflict, or or is there a process that makes the whole thing live well in peace and harmony?
0: There is there is a
1: natural tension. And conflict between innovation and standards. Yeah, conflict's probably a bit harsh, but certainly tension. I mean, you, you sort of wanted to be, don't you? Absolutely.
0: And in throughout my career, um, I have been the designer of innovative systems and so on. And when I was designing cutting edge systems, I was pushing against the barrier of standards. I found, you know, the... them. Helpful at times and yet restrictive at other times. Um, But these days in in, in the role that I have, I work very, very closely with our design teams to make sure they not just understand the written word of the standards, but they understand why Ah. those particular requirements were written in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because there is so much more to a standard than just what is written on paper. There is so much thought, discussion, and debate that leads to one sentence, and this is the process of consensus. We need to bring everybody along
1: to to make sure that we deliver equitable outcomes for all. I, I think this is the point of why I said I don't understand standards because I, I you know, I can read them, <laughs> kind of. They're pretty technical, but I could read them. But there's more to than that. There's this understanding of what we're trying to achieve across a, a, a broad environment. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk more about standards and how the process works and um, you know, just dive a bit deeper into the standards part of your job. It's been a good chat. Thank you very much. This, back in a minute. No way. Thank you.
0: If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at AI That's B-I-G at AIgroup.com.au.
1: Listen, just before we move on from uh, decarbonisation around the world, my my, tenant, my my colleague, Tennant Reid, uh, says in my, our other podcast, One on Earth, uh, he says that the transition to a post-carbon world is starting to morph into a different equation uh, from the past. It's so something that you were sort of talking about as well, that it's going to be completely different. And as well as the pressing existential threat to the planet, which is making it critical we act quickly to reduce the global warming. The economics of clean energy is changing fast. The cost of renewable energy and alternative energy systems is dropping very quickly, and clean energy and other issues are becoming an attractive business proposition. Something that you've been involved in and uh, on the forefront for a while, and Schneider's as well. Tennis says that uh, the Republican politicians in Texas, United States, are uncomfortable, as we know, talking about the climate emergency, as they call, or as others call it. Yet at the same time, Texas is now <laughs> the region of the fastest rollout of renewable energy in America. So there's this kind of conflict between politics and uh, and the real economics. But regardless of that, the economics are changing and it's becoming quite a good business decision. Do you see this?
0: Yeah. As I previously alluded to, people are at the centre of the energy mm-hmm, transition mm-hmm. and the transition will challenge traditional models of leadership. Governments at all levels have a role to play yet we can't rely solely on governments to paint the picture and create an optimum set of policies and regulations. In Australia, the Australian Climate Leaders Coalition is a group of cross-sectoral Australian corporate CEOs supporting the Paris Agreement and commitments and setting and implementing public decarbonisation targets. The role of this coalition has, has played a very strong leading role in corporate Australia actually delivering on what we need to do and Schneider Electric is very proud to be part of that coalition.
1: I had dinner the night with a dear friend, a a retired uh, physician doctor uh, of quite some name. He's now in his early 80s and I told him about the podcast and the 3Ds and he sort of Challenge me as to whether or not decarbonisation is going to happen and, you know, it can't be done and a whole bunch of what I would call old man thinking. I, I said to him, this is not a thought bubble. This is not something that we're sort of, you know, trying to figure out. Decision's made, it's going to happen, and people from um, all – all areas of business, from CEOs down, are involved in some very, very smart brains. And whilst there's still some sort of debate in Australia media about it, it's one truly past it in other parts of the world. It's it's, uh, it's kind of, it's almost cute that there's still people saying, no, is this really going to happen? And they keep saying, we once said you'll never give up horses, but there's no more horses in the this, in this city of Adelaide. It's It's not surprising that
0: there is still that level of, Sentiment in in the general public, but I think a lot of that comes about because the the work that my colleagues and and, and people like I do is often done behind closed doors. Um, the, the the work we do that we, we we don't often speak about or or or, or, or celebrate and. And so, the general public are, are probably completely unaware of the depth of work that's going into this, mm, mm. nor the the level of intellect and
1: commitment that we're throwing at this at this challenge. But people are still the center, so we have to bring the people along and and I enjoy this conversation. What occurs to me is let's talk about supply chains for a second. You mentioned that there is a different pace around the world, um, mm. and uh, you know we're both in it. Personally, this different pace, and that, that comment from tenant about Texas being the leader these days—that must put a lot of pressure on supply chains and suppliers in trying to manage the, the standards, the standards across the world. Let's talk about standards. It must put pressure on supply chains.
0: Yeah, you're quite right. the The rate of progress is as varied as the unique challenges each country's faced. This disparate set of global requirements is challenging the goal of globally harmonized standards. And so organizations such as the IEC, the International Electrotechnical Commission, or ISO, the International Standardization Organization, um, attempt to develop globally harmonized standards so that we can equally share in the benefits of those standards around the world. And so this is being challenged by those disparate set of requirements. And that leads to challenges for supply chains around the world as they attempt to ramp up to scale to meet the demand of the energy transition at the same time they're being challenged by unique country requirements.
1: How does the process work? Uh, Let's go back to fundamentals. How does the standards process work? A group of people who know what they're talking about get together and decide what. What everyone should make.
0: Yeah, so standards are, are quietly, quietly ubiquitous in, in our modern lives, and hence the the, the observation that you just made before. Yeah. Um, and so standards have, in particularly in Australia, have been around um, since the, the development of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Um, just last year stands Australia
1: well i didn't expect that comment to come up all
0: right so what yeah so stands Australia um, have last year just celebrated uh their 100 year anniversary um, and so they were they were created um, in 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 amongst the, the the design and the building of the Sydney harbour bridge
1: Is that Right, Are the the two
0: connected was the bridge built to standard um well i i i, I, I I wouldn't say it was built to standard. It was, it was, it was built, you know, largely in work to the of the work of um, Bradfield. Mm. But um, you know, the the people involved in that saw the need to develop standards. Um, and so, if you look at things such as um, wrought iron bolts and and and, and that whole process,
1: yeah. how can you
0: make sure that you not just do one a job? correctly once, that it is repeatable across, say, for example, the entire bridge. Think about the amount of bolts in the Sydney Harbour Bridge. How can you ensure that every single bolt, once installed, is going to do its job for at least 100 years it's been up and hopefully at least another
1: 100? So how does it work? So people get together and say, here's specifically what we need for every bolt.
0: Yeah, so both local and international standards are developed by consensus um, and this principle of consensus is critical to ensure that standards deliver equitable outcomes for everyone. So in a, within Standards Australia, there's many, many technical committees and a given technical committee will focus on a particular topic um, or a particular set of standards. And an application. And that technical committee will be comprised of technical experts representing all aspects of society that are impacted. So, for example, in in the electrotechnical space, in where I participate, Mm -hmm. there will be um, state based regulators who are responsible for creating and enforcing regulations. There will be installers who install products. There will be manufacturers who manufacture those products. There will be representatives from consumers Mm -hmm. who ensure that consumers' interests are met. And that mix will vary based on, on what the committee is working on. And it's really important to ensure that there is an equitable balance of participation around that table to ensure that you get those equitable outcomes for everybody.
1: I notice in the Standards Australia website, it says that standards are voluntary documents, voluntary documents that set out specifications, procedures, and guidelines that aim to ensure products and services and systems are safe, consistent, and reliable. I guess those three words are the key parts of what's going to happen, but may also... Get you to comment on the voluntary document aspect of it.
0: That's that's exactly right. So a standard by itself has no legislative authority. Is that right? Um, okay. No. But once a standard is published, a manufacturer could choose to manufacture products to that standard. A customer could ask a manufacturer to deliver products to that standard. Mm-hmm. But for a standard to be compulsory from a a legislative perspective, that requires um, federal or state-based regulations to cite that standard, either in full or in part, and and, and that occurs around around Australia and New Zealand with various standards. One of the most important ones um, in the electrotechnical space is ASNZS 3000. I'll just take the time to explain <sighs> yeah, that please. acronym that I just yeah, threw yeah, off the yeah. off the top of my head very easily. Oh. So ASNZS, um at, you'll hear it all the time. It refers to Australian standard slash New Zealand standard. So that means it is a joint standard developed by both Australia and New Zealand mm-hmm. for the purposes of deployment in both countries. It's a really important process, and it's a, it's a – very valuable aspect of Australia's and New Zealand's cooperation in manufacturing, in trade, in ensuring that
1: there are um, safe and equitable outcomes for everybody. Which brings us to this point of that sounds like it takes a long time to develop. It sounds like it takes a while for everyone to agree. Um, people are people. It takes a while to agree, agree to the standards. How can we make sure that... What we're buying is new, is modern, is leading edge, the very best smart TV going, but it's made to standards. how How are we going to keep the pace up?
0: Yeah, so it is not uncommon to spend hours discussing the exact wording of one sentence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is the this is part of the power of standards because that debate has taken so long because, Earlier on, I mentioned that it's important not just to understand what is written on paper, mm-hmm. but what was the intention behind yeah, yeah, that yeah, sentence. Yeah. And the intention behind that is the outcome of considering all of the perspectives of these various stakeholders, from regulators to installers to manufacturers to consumers to Everybody who has a stake in that standard.
1: So how, how do we keep up the pace? Is it is it possible, or is it is there going to be a delay?
0: Yeah. So 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 that's that's the challenge, um, and that's why standards are so robust, but it takes a long time. One of the ways in which we can make things faster is by adopting and working more closely with international standards development. Mm-hmm and Standards Australia is committed to work on that process. So say, for example, if I represent Australia on a committee um, at the IEC, the National Electrotechnical Commission, that is responsible for um, circuit breakers and um, residual current devices, so right. the devices that protect us in, 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 in everyday electrical installations. So by leveraging the work of global standards, is one very important measure to help increase the speed of standards development. Um, And there are also other ways that are being investigated, such as incorporating technical writers within the the committee. So that way you can have the technical experts uh, bringing their, their expertise to the discussion, but not necessarily having to be an expert at the technical content and also the wording. Uh, you bring people who are experts at the wording of these things to to help facilitate that that development process.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's sounds to me it's difficult. Uh, I know again just reading from what Standard Australia says: standards ensure the safety, quality, and reliability of products and services. They protect our health and the health of the environment. And for business standards, improve systems and processes. They reduce waste, cut costs, and ensure consistency. That sounds all very aspirational. Um, does it really work, considering the ponderous nature of creating a standard? By the time a standard is published, um, as I mentioned,
0: a lot has gone into ensure that that standard will deliver those outcomes.
1: So, so you, you stand by those those, those outcomes. They're, they're the ones that you're trying to achieve. It's not just a, a motherhood statement.
0: Oh, abs- absolutely. Um, now, this is when I, I mentioned before about joint standards. We're between Australia and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, when that is fully adopted and fully, um, and everyone has been heard in that process, that enable the standards to be consistent, um, meet the needs of everybody, and also enable regulators to apply those standards, then there is the potential for positive outcomes for both Australians and New Zealanders with respect to the outcomes of those standards.
1: There's business owners, managers, operators listening to this podcast, and standards are something they need to get their head around. What's the steps? How do they make sure they understand what you're saying is the key part of of standards? We've got this rapidly changing world, and we're coming up with new products all the time. How should I, as as a business owner and operator, see standards, and what can I do to add to the process?
0: Well, I think the first thing is to see them as an opportunity as opposed to a threat. Um, as I mentioned earlier on in my in, in my early design days, there was there was a natural friction, um, but I always saw value in them. So I think that's the first step. The second step is if you, as an individual, as as a leader. Don't feel that you have the technical proficiencies to be across this and, and, and no one can be completely across everything. Um, engage, engage with people who do participate in this process. There are many, many contributors to standards processes and, and each of those um, individuals who are sitting on technical committees, they're not just representing themselves, they're not just representing their company. They are representing a nominating organisation, mm-hmm. and so there's some brilliant nominating organisations and, and and peak industry groups such as the Australian such industry as the Australian group, group.
1: industry group, yeah, uh,
0: who 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 have a very significant role to play in this space. Um, so reaching out to such organisations is probably a really great first step to understand the role that they play and how they can assist you and and your business.
1: Yeah. Australian Industry Group has a significant investment in, in the standards process in Australia, uh, and that's how we come across each other, uh, Lucy. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's been a good chat. Thank you for explaining standards in a much more broader context than just a bunch of words on a bit of paper, uh, and also the context of the change. What's next for you? What's next?
0: <laughs> um... We've got a lot of work to do in the space of the energy transition. Mm, mm. Um, and particularly its impact on the electrical installation. Um, it's not just about ensuring that new designs, new buildings, new installations are ideal. But how do we address sometimes decades-old tra- electrical installations? How do we ensure that they're still safe? How do we ensure that we can bring all of this new technology into this space? Uh, so. There are some of the immediate challenges on on my agenda.
1: Just a couple of small ones,
0: yeah. Just just a couple of small ones. So, what what is next beyond that? I think it's very hard to to predict. Um, but I have no doubt the the continual discussions that I have over the next week will help form what I do in the next month, and the discussions I have in the next month will help determine. Uh, what and how I approach those challenges in the next year. We're moving in a very, very rapidly changing environment. And I fully expect that the next decade of my career will be the busiest of my entire career to date, and probably even after that.
1: Uh, Well, thank you for explaining that. I think it is important that uh, we get the message out as often as we possibly can, that there is a lot going on. It's not as I said, it's not a thought bubble. There is a whole uh, industries, There's thousands of people, some very smart brains, helping the business, helping the economy to change. It's not we're not only trying to plan it, but we're also and try to come up with the answers. But we're also doing a lot, and uh, you've done great in that. I've told the story before uh, that I was in Sydney a little while ago, and I uh, at a networking function, and uh, where I'd spoken, and uh, a man who was an electrical contractor came up to me, and we're having a my coffee and he said you know I, I wish someone would work out how much electricity we're going to need if we do all of this uh, and i, I said to him, are, are you serious do, do you seriously think that the, the electric generators haven't spent thousands of dollars figuring out exactly how much we know they know exactly how much we're going to need uh, with a whole bunch of different scenarios of course people are thinking about this, this is not just a thought bubble and do you really think no one's done those numbers and he said you know when you say like that i guess people have thought about this and said this is not just someone we're talking about. This is a big industry. And you've done a great job in trying to explain your part. Thank you for that.
0: Thank you very much.
1: I hope Adelaide warms up for you. I'm sure, I'm sure it definitely will come summer. <laughs> and then you'll be complaining about it. Uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, all the best. Um, uh, Lucy, it's been great chatting to you. I really enjoyed that chat. And I think you've made some, some wonderful points for us to think about. Most people listen to this on the weekend while they're walking the dog or washing the car. So uh, no doubt will be nodding their head as just back in and said, good point. Good point. So thank you very much. Thank you, James. I've really enjoyed it. That's it for another episode of Supply Circles. Thanks again to everyone for listening and thanks for your feedback that comes in all the time. If you do have any feedback on today's interview with Lucy or, ideas for the show or just want to give me some feedback hit me up at james.scotland 1t james.scotland at aigrip.com.au or head over to my linkedin page i'd love to hear from you and we'll be back in a fortnight with more insights into the keys to building sustainable supply chains thanks for joining me this is supply circles i'm james scotland bye for now